0: Welcome to Enemies of the People, a podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies, and welcome to episode 26 of Enemies of the People. I'm Maria Norris, and it's so good to be back doing this podcast and sharing all these amazing conversations with you. Today's guest is Suraima Manzur Khan. Suraima is a writer and an educator and a poet. She first shot to fame when her performance of her poem This Is Not A Humanizing Poem during the 2017 London Roundhouse Poetry Slam went viral. I remember watching that performance and it gives me chills to this day. I have been a fan of her poetry and her work for a long time and I was thrilled to find out that her book Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Slumophobia" was coming out this year. Tangled in Terror is her first book of prose, and it shares the lyrical writing and fire of her debut poetry collection, Post-Colonial Banta. Suhaima and I talk about how Islamophobia is part of the world system of capitalist colonialism, and we also talk about the power of poetry to disrupt and counter that system and to help us imagine better futures. Now, without further ado, here's Suhaima.
1: My name is Sahima Manzul Khan. I am a poet, a writer and an educator. And I'm interested particularly in disrupting narratives to do with race, gender, violence. And my latest book that is published is Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia out with Pluto Press.
0: And we'll talk about your book a lot in this episode, but I want to start with your poetry because you started just introducing yourself by saying you like to disrupt narratives and disrupt existing um, narratives. And the first poem I ever heard of yours and the one that really I think made you famous <laughs> if I can use that word was this is not a humanizing poem so it starts by disrupting even with the title right you're saying this is not what you would expect.
1: Yeah yeah it's interesting because that poem it came about after the London Bridge attack in um, 2017 and it was just a like kind of the circumstance that led me to writing it because what I realized and I think what I still learn from that poem in that moment is that that Wait on Muslims to kind of justify our humanity, to kind of apologize, explain, condemn all of that is, is so palpable and it relates to so many people and so many people have felt it. And I think what's interesting to me always with that poem is that it did, that it did go so viral because I just thought that was something that I felt this feeling in isolation. But actually when you kind of go, you know, millions of people across the world resonate with this, for me, that was actually a moment where I began to think about okay, well, it can't just be a coincidence that this is like a shared experience. And once, in my experience where things are shared, I recognize that there are probably other causes. And so for me, actually, this became like a moment of political awakening as well, where it was like, okay, so what are the structural reasons that so many individuals who are Muslim feel this need to condemn violence or to kind of distance themselves from or prove their humanity? So yeah, I always feel like the kind of the feeling, the embodied reality of being Muslim in the world today informs the reason I kind of introduced myself first as a poet is that I do I do feel like those feelings, those realities, those embodied experiences really feed into and should be the basis of the kind of analysis and critique that we then build in terms of resisting, you know, state violence and societal violence. So, yeah, I'm really glad you start with the poetry.
0: Because um, it's fascinating to me as well from a non-poet perspective. When we talk about activism and all of that, we don't think about poetry, right? So what is it about poetry that for you is such a rich ground for activism and for disruption?
1: You know, poetry has always, in, in the sense that narratives and kind of, whether it's disrupting narratives, you know, using, whether that's like protest slogans, chants, songs, prison poets, hip hop, rap, like I think there is actually a really rich culture of using narrative, using the written spoken word, particularly I think oral, like oral cultures to, A, I think, yeah, disrupt, like, commonly held or hegemonic narratives, so to say, like, actually speak back, in a way, and I think that's really powerful. And and, and this is one of the things I talk about in the book, is that, you know, material realities are upheld and legitimised through those narratives. And so if you can convince the entire public imagination that Muslims are terrorists, then you can uphold a whole host of kind of material violences. And so, in the same way, I think disrupting through poetry is really powerful, because, uh, because, because it can kind of, you know for a moment, reveal something or can kind of bring people's attention to something. And I think the other thing with poetry is that you can, because it's not, it's not particularly, it's not an academic essay. It's not a piece of prose. It's not something where you have to, the form of it doesn't require you to kind of do, you know, point evidence explanation. It's much more like, it feels much more urgent. And to me, and, you know, I say that kind of having written across different genres and it feels much more, demanding it feels like you know when you listen and you read poetry and you hear poetry it galvanizes you mobilizes you in a way that maybe other forms of writing don't do so much so yeah it, it's always felt exciting to me and it's always felt like that possibility is there also to imagine alternative worlds and that's what i find really exciting about creativity in general i see that in my friends who are artists visual artists photographers whatever i think we have to as much as we, we have to resist and we have to critique I think we deserve, not just that we have to, but that we deserve to imagine the alternative. What is the world we want to build? And I think that's where we move from despair to hope, like where we can actually build, okay, well, it's not simply a matter of like, oh, this system is so violent, so violent, so violent. Instead, it's we know and we believe and we trust that there are many other ways to build a world that is nourishing and healing and caring. and I, I think poetry can do all of that.
0: It's interesting that you made that connection there that, that poetry and imagination, but particularly imagination through poetry can act as a bridge between despair and hope because for me, poetry feels almost like prayer. There is something about it. just feels like a prayer, an incantation of some kind that is reaching out to something that is, from a place that is beyond us to a place that is, you know, beyond the listener. You can get as much from poetry as you can get from from an academic book on an issue. It's just a different way of getting there. It's a different way of making that connection.
1: And oftentimes a, a lot more accessible as well, right? I mean, even this is not a humanizing poem. When I wrote that, I was writing my master's dissertation at the same time, on technically on the same themes. But like, I just remember thinking to myself, you know, two people will read this dissertation and like millions of people can engage with this poem. And so I think there's something as well about, you know, translation of ideas, kind of like sharing tools, resources, and, and all of that. So I think the, the radical potential of poetry is massive, in my opinion.
0: And it's also the contrast with academic writing. It brings to mind this insistence that we have in academia, as you know, I'm an academic, and uh, something that I very strongly I feel very strongly against this, this insistence in academia of being objective, of removing yourself from the narrative of the, the the complete falsehood that you can even create objective narratives in the first place. What objective narratives do is they maintain the status quo, right? There's, they're not objective. They never have been. And I see the uh, some movements in academic writing in your book. I include your book in this, but also Rizwan's book from last week, Rizwan Sabir, The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam and the Security State, where he inserts himself directly mm. into the narrative. And in your book, you speak directly to the readers as well. And, and it's so important to do that because the, the um, idea of objectivity, especially on an issue such as Islamophobia and counterterrorism ish, and race and inequality in general, idea of objectivity is false and pushing for some kind of objectivity just serves to maintain the status quo rather than radically disrupting anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because in a way, like the the personal accounts in, I guess, my book and, and Rizwan's book, by by those who don't want to kind of hear the disruption of that hegemonic order will, will be seen as the flaw, right? That it's like, oh, it's too subjective. This is very personal. You're coming with a lot of anger, with a lot of, you know, feeling. And yeah, and I think that just, like you say, it further works to hide, yeah, the the in, the built-in structural kind of violences hidden within what we deem universal, neutral, etc. And And yeah, and I, and I think that is something that's, yeah that's within academia but it's within all our spaces right like every structure every institution this idea of the universal and the neutral and so to me the idea of writing a book about Islamophobia was like I'm never going to try I'm not even going to try to use the tools used against me I'm not going to try to pretend that this is not a personal book this is a very personal book this is a very personal issue as everything is and I'm just not going to play that game of trying to argue on the terms of those who are trying to pretend to me or gaslight to many people that this is something that we can speak about as you know, pros and cons. It's not a pros and cons kind of issue, right?
0: <laughs> and it's important because it affects you. And it's how can you remove yourself from a story that has essentially been written about you?
1: The question I ask myself sometimes is, why do we write? And I think this is an important question for anybody to ask who does write. And in a way, I think sometimes within academic spaces as well, and, and not just academia, but sometimes with writing, I do think there can be a you know, writing for writing's sake. And I'm not saying that's inherently bad, but I I think, you know, in a world that's so full of violence and oppression, actually writing has to have a purpose. And so for me, the link as well between my personal embodied experiences and realities and other people's was that we deserve to have a rigorous analysis of, of what those everyday experiences are. And I think... Oftentimes, because of structural inequalities, actually it takes for people to have to go through a lot of like educational system and access certain types of writing and certain authors to have a framework to analyze their experiences. And actually, that's something we all deserve. We deserve to be able to understand that, oh, the reason I feel stressed isn't because I have some personal failing or deficiency. It's actually because of all these kind of structural societal factors. And so and there's also that element for me that's really important about connecting the personal with the kind of analysis to say everything's political, everything has a way of kind of being approached that doesn't kind of just centre the individual. And I think that's important for all of us. I see this a lot with my students
0: at university, especially my first year students coming to university and just being deathly afraid of having an opinion. They just... want to regurgitate what the authors say and you really have to make them say no I know what the authors say I've read these books I've set the reading list I want to know what you have to say about this issue and they are almost so scared of getting it wrong and Mm. uh, and almost as if they are trying to remove themselves from what they're studying and Mm -hmm. that to to keep that distance and I think that's a, a failure of the education system really that insists on separating the person from the story. You work with schools as well and students. Is this something that you've noticed yourself in working with students?
1: That's an interesting question, actually, because I usually interact with schools and children doing poetry workshops, right? And I think it's so interesting when you come in from that angle because I, I try to frame the session from the very beginning that this is not about right and wrong. And I think what, what I notice in those sessions is that children, young people, are always—it's so—they're so refreshed. I think that's such a novel approach in a classroom where you know you're schools are having to just focus on grades and getting things correct or incorrect. And I think it's really empowering and it's so interesting because teachers will always say to me, that child is usually so unengaged and I was so fascinated that they were engaged. And to me that's just so revealing of the fact that we people, everybody, but young people I think really deserve a space to to kind of center like what I my experiences of the world are a form of knowledge in of themselves. And I think that's what's really never given a platform and that's what's particularly important to me when i work working with particularly children of color like children who do experience all these forms of repression that maybe they can't yet articulate but actually through their experiences they can and they do know and that was actually something that what made me want to write the book was that you have 11 year olds 12 year olds who already know how they're perceived in the public imaginary and they carry the pain of that and the weight of that without any corresponding kind of framework to understand that this is not their personal failing this has nothing to do with them the onus isn't on them to disprove it to you know humanize themselves or to condemn it or anything and yeah I really feel like if there was more of a focus like you're saying in 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 educational systems or wherever that actually you are your experiences are a source of knowledge gathering you are collecting data all the time and actually you're an expert many young people of color will be experts in kind of white supremacy in structural violence but they'll never be told that they'll never be I suppose not celebrated but like empowered for you know seen as like this is a skill set that you have and instead it's just like oh that, that's just like a marginal experience and no, I'm not sure if that's true that's just your opinion right and that would be such a radical reframing, in my opinion. And and, and I think it would really empower and, and like help us to mobilise one another.
0: It's difficult, isn't it? Because me and many others in academia try to approach teaching as a collaborative thing. There are yeah. many names in, in pedagogy for it. you know, Research-led teaching or student-led teaching, collaborative learning and all of it. And there is, of course, resistance from the students who are not used to it. And they're afraid of getting it wrong, especially because there is the whole apparatus of academia behind them. And an expertise that they don't feel... That it's theirs, you know, they don't feel entitled to that expertise, and that is an issue. But also from the structure of academia that believes that collaborative learning, research led learning, or student led learning is wrong because the academic, the teacher is the expert and they're the ones in front of the classroom giving the information rather than the students and the teachers engaging and learning together.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Something I've been trying to do around the events I've done with the book is is also to disrupt that kind of pedagogy as well. Because I think when you've written a book, people assume, you know, you are now the expert on this this kind of issue or whatever, and you're going to speak to us about it. And something I've been really conscious of is saying, no, actually you all hold this knowledge. You all have something to contribute to this. And I'm simply trying to provide a few tools that we might be able to articulate the problem better. But yeah, it's so difficult because as you say, like every structure kind of tells you that that is not the way that learning and knowledge pass through and across people. So yeah, it's a difficult one, but it's inspiring that there are there are people like yourself in academia. And I think there are many people across different spaces trying to disrupt that kind of learning and thinking.
0: Disruption is the way forward, is what I, right. what I always say. I mean, this, this system, this world, this society badly needs some disruption. And it's interesting how we find, I don't know if you find this yourself, but I sometimes find it with my students, they themselves are resistant to that disruption. So for example, I start, I teach many courses, one of them is a terrorism module. And one of the first Classes that we have in the terrorism module is the study of terrorism. What does it mean to study terrorism? Because terrorism is a label, is a meaning. We call it, you know, meaning making practice. It's a signifier, and in the classroom, the students and myself, we are engaged in creating meaning around this word. And it's important that we are very much aware of how the meanings that we associate with the word terrorism don't come from nowhere. We all bring our baggage and we all take that with us when we leave the classroom as well. So it's, it's a meaning making process that we're engaged with together. And I find sometimes some students are very much attached to the idea of having a formal definition of terrorism or an absolute definition of terrorism. So many of my students come to the classroom determined to leave with knowing what causes terrorism, Mm. what are the causes of terrorism and how to solve it. And they, some of them, change their minds along the way, but quite a few of them I feel leave a bit disappointed because I haven't given them that answer, right? I haven't told them what terrorism is and how to solve it and where it comes from. So I think the issue with disruption is that we create lots of shades of gray and a lot of people Mm -hmm. want black and white.
1: Right. And I do see that as well. I remember a really interesting conversation I had around when I was writing the book was speaking to, you know, a Muslim who was saying that, but surely to you know, if you counter counterterrorism, then you're pro-terrorism. And I was just like, this is so fascinating, right? Because the language is so simple that of course, yeah, I, I can see exactly what you're thinking when you say that. But if we start to kind of, yeah, Dismantle that a little bit, raise questions about what those things might mean. It was, I think it was quite overwhelming to the person I was speaking to because it's like, well, okay, hang on, well, what's violence? Well, hang on, okay, well, what's oppression? Okay, well, what does that mean about my experiences then when I've been stopped by the police? I think it can really be quite like, it can lead to existential kind of queries, right? Because then you're left with the question of, have the ways that I've been told to understand my experiences been true? And if not, that can be either debilitating or very politicizing. And I think that's a moment that a lot of people have, right, where we kind of become radicalized into understanding how the world operates or maybe some for some people that can be too overwhelming and and maybe because it also raises a lot it triggers a lot of traumas I think a lot of us repress that understanding because it's too traumatic
0: I always tell people that you know once I once I did my PhD I couldn't unsee certain things and it ruined everything for me because it does like you can't you can't just sit there and watch a tv show anymore or watch the news anymore
1: yeah it makes you annoying right because (laughs) but yeah and I think that's the trouble with like we do live in such a 2D, abstracted, narrativized world. And then once you start asking questions, when do you stop? There is no stopping, right? Yeah. But if, if we didn't have that, I think actually reality would be. It's so scary, I guess, with, without the questions and without those kind of constant disruptions in revealing. and revealing. You just kind of think, like, well, what would I be accepting? Like what version of events would I be accepting? And that's that's really distressing to me as well.
0: frenemies did you know that our frenemies book club is back and our may book club book is none other than the suspect counterterrorism islam and the security state by rizwan sabir rizwan was our guest on the previous episode of the podcast so if you haven't listened to that yet please check it out suhaima's and rizwan's book go super well together and we will be talking about both during may's book club I will be giving away two copies of the book, and to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is support the show over at Ko-fi, or share a screenshot of your review of the show with us on our Twitter. The link for our Ko-fi is in our bio. And as you can tell, Enemies of the People has no advertising or sponsors. All the costs of the show are covered by myself and the incredible donations of our listeners, so thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me continue to do this. You can always donate as a one-off donation over a coffee or join as a monthly supporter. As a monthly supporter, you also get access to our live book club Zoom meeting so we can all get together and talk to each other. It's one of the highlights of my months and I always look forward to it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me to continue to do this show. And now, back to the show. really like that you do with your book that I find fascinating and just something that I hadn't seen before is that you directly connect Islamophobia with wider structures such as capitalism so what for you is this connection then between Islamophobia and the capitalist system as a whole
1: so something that was really important to me with writing the book you know was that Islamophobia I think in a lot of the conversations we see about it is it's separated off as like a very specific type of Maybe it's a racism, maybe it's not racism, but it's something that operates really on its own. And so it was really important to me to integrate Islamophobia. I guess this is the reason it become you know, becomes impossible to disentangle it from capitalism, but is that for me it was like, okay, well White supremacy is like this overarching racializing system that I have understood Islamophobia through. That's the way I've come to understand Islamophobia as uh, it's, it's a form of racism. As as all racisms, it racializes the other, and there's a whole host of kind of ways that you'll be brutalized and whatever on the back of that. And to me, that the the reason that white supremacy exists is that that has always served a material interest. The reason that you have the creation of races, the the, the idea of racial hierarchy and distinctions. Is so that you can go dominate certain lands. You can exploit labor. You can exploit resources. It's a profitable, basically. The reason that racism still operates today is surely because there are still beneficiaries. And so, for me, the link between Islamophobia and capitalism was quite simple. It was that Islamophobia can't be random. I don't believe that anything can be, you know, random, incidental, accidental. So, you know, who benefits from Islamophobia? And once you start tracing that, and you go, okay, well, the idea of Muslims as a threat in the public imaginary. Yeah, what has it led to? Let's ask that as the first question. Okay, well, it's led to these certain policies, it's led to this legislation. And once you start kind of tracing that, you go, well, who benefits? It's there. Is so, There's a whole security industry, not just national, but global. There's border forces, there's, you know, deals between governments, there's research that's sold, there's research that's funded, there's think tanks, there's a whole host array. And I mean, this is what we call, I suppose, the security industrial complex. But there's a whole host of stakeholders who make money on the back of this. And I think that's really important because it, it first it ties it into that global system, that world system of colonial capitalist white supremacy. But also for me, what's really important about that is that it helps us to have a target and it, ha- it helps to go, okay, there is, this is not random. It's not purely like a moral deficiency. This isn't just about people being mean and nasty to Muslims. It's not that governments are just kind of like conspiratorially unkind, but if if somebody benefits, they have a stake in it. And therefore, it's something they're not going to stop doing if you just say to them, Muslims are actually really nice people, don't be mean, right? And I think that's a really important logic to disrupt. And that's why that link to to capitalism is there in the book. And I think this is just due to my own activism, the way that I kind of came to politics. And just to illustrate the point, one of the things the editor asked me when I was writing the book was, do you want everybody who finishes the book? Do you want them to start campaigning about Islamophobia? Is that like what you would like to see happen? And I said, actually, no, because what's more important to me is that people wherever they find themselves it's instead that they make the connection to islamophobia so i work in a domestic violence shelter how can this have anything to do with islamophobia Ooh, actually what are the narratives to do with women and to do with violence that are in my work and how do these link to the ways that i maybe imagine whether it's muslim people as is inherently violent or imagine muslim women as whatever it is like i think there are connections in whatever work you do that can be made to Islamophobia and that's what I really wanted the book to do was to say that we all already have a vested interest in upholding it because it is part of the current order and so you are already stationed somewhere where you can start dismantling it. It was really important to me to make those connections yeah.
0: The thing that people forget about capitalism is at its core about social relationships is about the relationship between people and you can see that very clearly with with counterterrorism and Islamophobia and you make this connection very very clear in your book is that without terrorism there is no terrorism industry so without the suspects there is no counter-terrorism and that is million dollar million pound industry and it is it needs the problem in order to continue to function so there is definitely an element of the problem being created in order to enable it to continue to function.
1: I completely agree and just to add to your point something that's obscured in a conversation sometimes around capitalism is also that you know imperialism is like the functional arm of capitalism and that's the other thing that it's impossible to kind of remove a conversation about terrorism from the global war on terror that has has allowed so many interventions so much kind of devastation and again not random not incidental not kind of just to no end that has profited you know corporations security corporations private oil corporations you know gas All sorts, and I think that again is somehow, even though it's so obvious and so palpable, is also so obscured.
0: It is, and it almost seems groundbreaking when you tell it, and people are like, I hadn't thought of it before empire and colonialism. But once you spend five minutes thinking of it, you can see these connections. And so, my own book is coming out next year, it's called Empire of Terror, and it um traces the development of his of um, UK counterterrorism strategy from the empire from the colonies awesome. until today and the, the point that it's making is that modern counterterrorism is a modern form of empire it's essentially a modern tool of empire um, the empire didn't go anywhere it just changed to look the way it does today and the way that you make this point in your book as well but the global war on terror cannot be separated from colonialism.
1: This is one of those points that like once you think about it for a couple of minutes it it's not that radical and it's not that much of a, a wild thing to say and so my entry point in the book I think where I try to make that connection is to say okay well when when we think about colonialism again you know and I think it's easier to do it this way rather than comparison because I think we have maybe come to a stage where we can accept more broadly that colonialism you know wasn't justifiable isn't justifiable but that it was justified through narratives about the people and the lands and the places that were being invaded and you know exploited and usually these narratives had to do with them being backwards barbaric uncivilized in need of civilizing in need of kind of bringing into modernity and the interesting thing is if you now fast forward to today and if we strip away the specifics and if I don't tell you the context but I say to you that there's theorising about this group of people and their lands and the places they live in. And we say that they need to be democratised. They need to be brought into modernity. You know, they, they oppress their women. And so we need to go and we need to intervene. And also while we're there, actually, it just so turns out that there's really handy resources here. There's really important minerals in these places. And in fact, for our geopolitical interests, in the the kind of wider region it would be really useful for us to have military posts there and then if I tell you that that narrative is one that kind of labels those those people as terrorists as extremists jihadists whatever you want to call it then you really see that there's actually no difference between kind of colonialism 200 years ago and and what we see today and then there's also the kind of the link between over there and over here in quotations in the sense that a lot of the, and I'm sure this is what you'll you'll know much more about this than me, but I think so much of the counterinsurgency policing that we saw develop through colonialism, where you know that there are always threats, they're always their protests aren't just anti-colonial protests, they're actually riots, they're actually rebels, they're actually terrorists, they are you know a threat to the entire order of things. Well, again, you have that, that's the same discourse about Muslims at home, and not just Muslims, people of colour in different and you know, in different guises, whoever is othered, immigrants, asylum seekers. Um But then that justifies the kinds of policing that we were only previously justified abroad, right? And so you can have armed raids of people's homes. You can have detention without charge, detention without trial. You can have secret tribunals where evidence isn't brought. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that these things happen in Britain. People like to have this idea of Britain as a a liberal democracy. Um, And the irony is that we think liberal democracy has nothing to do with colonialism when it was liberal democracies wherein colonialism was founded and that they were built on the back of. And so... Yeah, I would I completely agree with your synopsis that empire today is the empire of yesterday. This is just continuation and it's just new, perhaps new narratives or perhaps new manifestations of those narratives. But for me, it was the only argument left to make when I'd done all the research. All the evidence points to the continuation of the same strategies. And actually, I, I find that quite useful because it's like, if it's just the same strategies, then actually they, there's nothing novel about what's going on. And in that sense, we I think we can find ways to really undermine as people always have and those people who were always called rioters who were always called rebels were protesting throughout history and once we start framing like that you can find a lot of examples of resistance that we can learn from now today.
0: I find it as well that if you frame it the way that you have is that you see that it's very much an old way of arranging the world and that a new way of arranging the world is much necessary but also you can see that this old way of arranging the world is kind of like at a breaking point because i always say this when i'm teaching about nationalism is that nationalism served a function at a particular time when it comes to independence movements. But the whole idea that people's identities, that people themselves are contained within borders and boundaries, is was fiction. It never was a reflection of reality. And even more so this day, I mean, people move. That's to be human is to move. We have always moved. But even more now today, where we're connecting across boundaries much more than before. So the idea of these discrete boundaries of identity, which is exactly what the empire is about, nationalism, about we belong here and you belong over that. It's straining at the borders, I feel, that it's um, mm. it's not sustainable. And that's why we see, in my opinion, such um, a rise in far-right extremism today. And the extremist um, governments that we have in power is this desperate attempt to grasp on to something which was always a fiction but it's even more of a fiction now and in a way I find it encouraging to see that because it's like oh this is old this is like a house that is crumbling down and it will eventually crumble down as long as we continue to push (laughs) at the boundaries of it because it is it's not sustainable
1: no and I think it also what I find exciting about what you've said there is that one of the things that sometimes we feel just on an individual level and we're kind of moving through the world is well, things have always been this way. Like, how can we can't possibly do anything because, well, there's always been nations, there's always been policing, there's always been prisons. And I think as soon as you identify that, oh, actually, these are really relatively modern ideas. And I, you know, personally, I've always found that useful, but I also find it useful to say to other people because I think that, it it kind of imprisons our minds imprisons our imaginations because once we start thinking that oh no things have always been this way we believe that we can't imagine an alternative but actually once you go oh no this idea is quite recent and in that sense then of course we could you know of course we can replace it. things have not always been this way of course there are other ways of existing there have always been other ways of existing and so yeah I always also find that a really exciting part of you know this crumbling of this old world order as you as you put it
0: Yeah, and we see those in power becoming more and more desperate to hold on to that crumbling order. And a recent example of this here in the UK was um, David Cameron's newspaper article when he was um, writing about the PREVENT program. And when he was saying that critics of PREVENT, Muslim critics of PREVENT are tantamount to enabling terrorism. And that for me, obviously, was outrageous, but it was also so old because it's that language, the Muslim critics of terrorism. It's not the entire, all the critics of terrorism. It's mm-hmm. those who are Muslim. Just like back during the empire, it was not the domestic opposition to empire that was a problem. It was the people in the colonies that were opposing the empire. There were the terrorists, there were the problems. So this is, it's so old and it feels, it is, I'm not trying to downplay the significance of what he said but at the same time it feels to me like this is a is an, an old order that is grasping at straws
1: yeah i mean it's just such an because i feel like it's so interesting when we if we look back at things like this like that that article in a couple of or well, not couple let's say like 50 years t- time what what will be the analysis of that? Because if we look at the way that those domestic opponents to slavery, colonialism today, they're heralded as like slavery only ended because of you know those white people within Britain or in America who really campaigned against it. And it's fascinating to think, well, actually at that time, all of the, the people who were enslaved or colonized who were resisting, they would have been seen as the terrorist sympathizers, the terrorists themselves. And yeah, it's fascinating that until historically kind of legitimacy switches sides and until the narrative changes whoever is a terrorist today or is terrorist sympathizer today or justifying whatever today in a couple of years time they could be heralded as you know they were really the only people on the side of liberty and free and history and narratives of history are so fickle that like that's also what frustrates me so much about those kinds of you know attempts to smear entire communities because it's just like as soon as it benefits the hegemonic order or their remembering of history or the, the side of history that they want, I'll we'll just switch. Yeah, a very
0: recent example of this is Nelson Mandela, right? He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993, and I believe he was in the US terrorist watch list until 2008, 2009. So, again, it shows just how malleable and fickle things are, as you say, but also this idea that we are able to imagine new worlds, that so none of this is set in stone. It was all there it all exists around us because of human behavior and human decisions and we can dismantle it and that's um i so appreciated how in your book you start out you open your book in your introduction by talking about imagining a different world you you really center in you know, abolitionism and emancipation at the very beginning like this is the core of the story that you're telling in your book and i really appreciate that no
1: i'm glad that you did because the way that i was approaching the book from the very start was we have seen conversations about Islamophobia. But what have I kind of seen them result in? And time and again, in my opinion, in the ma- in the mainstream conversations about Islamophobia, if we call them that, often what we see is that, okay, well, we need to improve things, right? We need to reform the system so it's less biased against Muslims. We need to encourage Muslims to, you know, participate in things so there's less exclusion. And maybe it's the poet in me, maybe it's the dreamer, whatever. I just feel like that's such a shallow and small horizon. Like, is that all we can aim for? Like, slightly less profiling slightly less exclusion and I think for me I I want to kind of completely move away from that that kind of aspiration of just belonging I suppose an understanding of anti-racism that only seeks to belong to the racist order um, which has always obviously been there and often is a top-down kind of you know the encouraged form of anti-racism and instead I wanted to say well Honestly, I have no interest in that. What I want is for people to feel safe and I want people to access justice and any way of tinkering with the current system that would be good enough that we we kind of enable all the people that currently don't experience safety and justice to experience it. And so it was really important to me that from the start, it was like, I'm analysing and addressing Islamophobia, not so that we can simply tone it down, water it down, make it a little bit less bad, but to say... There there is no justification for this to exist. It exists because of an accompanying world system that also has no justification. And I don't think we should be scared and we shouldn't be coerced and we shouldn't be bullied from saying that we deserve a different world order. And it was the only way to kind of write the book with justice to myself and like the communities that I feel this book deserves to be for. But also... I feel if I look at my everyday life and I look at the ways in which the people I care for and the people that I love, and I've always felt that not simply hoping for them, that they have a little bit of a less bad time, that they kind of aren't treated so badly that they're not stopped and searched every time they go, I don't want them to ever be harmed. You know, I don't want them to ever come into harm's way or ever experience any form of injustice. And I think if we can do that for the people that we love and the people we're closest to, why can't we imagine that for the world? It's not a wild next step to say, well, actually... I don't think anybody deserves a little bit of injustice. Maybe we can all have, truly have access to like complete safety and justice. And so, yeah, I wanted to start with that kind of, this is where we're going, because I also feel like I just, it would have just been a waste of my time to do an analysis that is simply like, okay, and the conclusion is, let's just have more legislation that deters people from being Islamophobic, because that's I'm just not interested in that. That's not my horizon. I, I really feel we deserve so much more.
0: To circle back to poetry, that reminds me of um, one of my favorite poems by Maggie Smith, Good Bones. And at the very end, when the poem was saying, you could make this place beautiful, this could be beautiful. You can make this place beautiful. The world Mm. is a really horrible place, at least 50% bad. And that's a conservative estimate, but you could make it beautiful. I'm butchering the poem, but I live, live with those lines on an almost everyday basis because it's very difficult to live in the world as it is. It is very difficult to remain hopeful and positive and active in the world as it is. Mm -hmm. But it's really this hope that we can make it beautiful because we made it this way in the first place. We can make it something better out of it. Mm -hmm. It's about having... The ability to imagine, but also it's internal because in a way we mm. have to, at least in my experience, decolonize our minds in a way, because just with capitalism, when you talk to people about a socialist alternative and they'll be like, yeah, but human beings are cynical, they're greedy, it's never going to work. And it's like, no, human beings are not like that. That is a capitalist way of thinking. That's what how capitalism wanted to think so it can continue to go on unopposed. So it's it's mm. a lot of internal work that needs to be done it as is, well in yeah. order to be able to do this.
1: I think we often become the propaganda machines for, you know, the propagandists, like they don't even need to do anything because we ourselves will deter one another from those things. And yeah, oftentimes we just haven't even allowed ourselves to imagine just a completely other way, not just replicating power structures and saying we want to be on the other side of it, but saying, well, what else could there be? And I think that's... It requires maybe a type of courage that is difficult because it's imagining what's unimaginable. It's it's imagining what we currently don't know what that might look like. But I think that's what's exciting to me about conversations around abolition, that it's not just about getting rid of everything, it's about what might we make. And one of the things that I really find kind of, that's so obvious in a way, but that we just miss all the time is that small practices of already imagining that alternative world exist in, in our communities everywhere. And I think particularly where you find the most marginalized people for example you know undocumented communities people who are not safe to be found by the state that they're they're being exploited in so many different ways because they're not safe but actually the ways that immigrant and asylum seeking communities will care for one another outside of the purview of the state kind of shows us that like actually there are ways of existing and caring for one another that that do exist already outside of what the state says is the only possible way so like only through accessing xyz thing can you get safety you have to call the police to be safe well actually no for lots of people that's not going to make them safer and they already have communal practices of care that actually make them safer on their own terms but i really think we undervalue and often because i think it is gendered labor we just see it as like oh, mom's doing random immigrant mom's doing random stuff I actually feel like for me, a lot of the practices of abolition that I'm thinking of when I'm thinking about creating alternatives to this world are because I've seen women of colour, immigrant women, asylum-seeking women do that already in just their day-to-day lives because they've had to, because that's how they've survived and they've had to survive. And so sometimes I think we're told that it's too aspirational, it's utopian, what else could there be? But we already know, if we really think about it, we already know that there are alternatives because they're being made in small pockets all around us all the time, because not everyone can even live in this, you know, as you know, we've talked about how difficult the situation is, but there's already so many people who can't even live, you know, in that situation as it is. So yeah, I, I derive a lot of hope from that actually.
0: Thank you so much, Suhaima. This has been incredible. I'm so glad that we finally had this opportunity to talk. And I've followed you. your work and I've loved your poetry for a long time now. So it's really a thrill to have you on the show. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for the amazing work you're doing too. I really look forward to your book. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: That was Suhaima Manzur Khan. You can find her on Twitter at the Brown TheBrownHijabi. Her newest book, Tangled in Terror, Uprooting Islamophobia, is available now. If you're enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. Rate and review the show, subscribe, follow, listen to your favorite episodes again and again, and make sure to share the podcast widely. As you know, we have no sponsors or advertising of any kind, so we rely on your word of mouth to get the podcast out there. You can also help keep Enemies of the People going and growing by supporting us over a coffee, either as a one-off or as a monthly supporter. I am giving away two free copies of our May book club book, Rizwan Sabir's The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam and a Security State. So to be in a chance of winning, just buy me a coffee or share a screenshot of your review of the show with us on Twitter. I really appreciate all of your support and I cannot wait to share the rest of the season with you. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W Norris. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People.